welcome back to the Thrillogy Podcast. My name's Krista, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Morgan and Cameron. And don't forget, if you want a shout out at the beginning of our next episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps us out and it helps other people find all things Thrillogy. We are back this week with a truly chilling case that takes place in Charlotte, North Carolina. So for those unfamiliar, Charlotte is North Carolina's biggest city and the 15th largest city in the United States. It's home to the Hornets, the NASCAR Hall of Fame, and the second largest Coca-Cola facility. But from the span of 1991 to 1994, it was actually home to something much more sinister. In the early 90s, the Charlotte Police Department was struggling to keep their heads above water as it was dealing with the ongoing crack epidemic and the rising rate of homicides in the area. To make matters worse, the homicide squad only had nine detectives. Detectives would report that they would go without seeing their family for days when on a case. So when this mystery killer, coined the Taco Bell Strangler, terrorized the city, it truly overwhelmed the authorities. Now, I know we normally don't give trigger warnings since people do come here for true crime content, but I am going to give a warning this time around because my research this week left me particularly shocked. The string of murders in Charlotte seemingly starts in May 1992 with the victim Sharon Nance. Some sources say that she was a prostitute and drug dealer, but nothing was made 100% clear. Her family had known something was up when she did not return home from her night out, when she was normally known to always keep her family in the loop. Work crews found her body and detectives who were on the case reported that it seemed the killer was full of rage as the body was left in brutal condition. But other than that, there was really no forensic evidence left behind. So it was easy to hit a roadblock with investigation. Some believe that it may have transpired when the killer refused to pay for services. In July 1992, management at the local Bojangles, which is a fast food restaurant, notices that one of their staff, Caroline Love, had not shown up for three days. Her good friend from work headed over to her apartment and headed inside, but Caroline was nowhere to be found. Even though this was the last place that she had been seen. So someone has said that they had dropped her off that night to her apartment, but now she was nowhere to be found. Her roommate, Sadie McKnight, and her sister, Kathy Love, then filed a missing person report. But of course, authorities originally speculate if she had left on her own just to get away from family drama and take a break. Now, you're going to see how this truly becomes a web of connections because Love actually knows the next victim. Love and this victim didn't know each other, but the killer waited about eight months to strike again in February 1993. That was when Shauna Hawk was found in her tub, barely hanging on. But by the time she was rushed to the emergency room, she didn't make it and died as a result of strangulation. But oddly enough, there was no forced entry in her apartment. And authorities point out that strangulation is typically personal. Could this be someone that Shauna knew? Did she let them into the house willingly? That said, the first suspect was actually her boyfriend because there were some inconsistencies in what he was telling detectives, but not enough to truly connect him to the crime. Between Nance and Love, and even shortly after Hawk's death, there were really no new breaks in the case, and the rate of Black women disappearing was continuing to rise. Authorities knew that they really had to buckle down to see what was going on. It was extremely difficult for authorities and forensic teams to find evidence within Hawk's home because the scene was left very clean, which included wiping down surfaces. 
The first shred of evidence they did get was finding Hawk's car in the parking lot of the community college which he attended. Now, Hawk was short in height, and the detective made a great point, and that was that the seat was actually found pretty reclined, like sitting far back, but she wouldn't have been able to drive like that being she was so short. And the car was also parked in the parking spot that she always pulled into at school. Does this tell you guys anything? I mean, to me, it sounds like it was Hawk, right? I, and I, I don't think this is quite outside the norm. I think this is actually something that's pretty common in true crime cases. They tend to look at the car of the missing person to see, is anything amiss? Does the seat look like it's, you know, like you said, to recline back or things like that? So definitely already off to a suspicious start. Exactly. So authorities brought up another excellent point besides the last person who had driven the car had to have been tall. And that point is that the parking in the exact spot, it almost indicates stalking. The person driving could not have been Hawk, but they certainly know her daily moves down to where she would park. So while we're not sure the exact level that Hawk is familiar with the killer, the killer is absolutely familiar with Hawk. Now we're going to run through some more of a timeline. So in June 1993, the killer strikes again in the home of Audrey Spain using strangulation. And again, there is no forced entry. In August 1993, he strangled Valencia Jumper and then sets her home on fire. In September 1993, he strangles Michelle Stinson. And yes, you guessed it, there was no forced entry. At this point, detectives were still looking at all these cases individually, not thinking that this could be the work of a serial killer. In February 1994, he strikes again. He strangles Vanessa Mack in her home. And it was one of those chilling scenes where the front door was left open. I feel like in any true crime instance, when the door is left ajar, it's never a good sign. And again, also a sign that there was no forced entry. I found that with Mac's case, this is where the killer not only becomes more ruthless, but also more sloppy. I won't go into detail, but his attack on Mac seemed to have lasted longer than his previous attacks. And in terms of sloppiness, he dumped out her purse and took her ATM card. Now, if a perp uses an ATM card, what do all ATMs have? Don't they all normally have cameras either in them or around them? Exactly. All ATMs have that small surveillance camera to see who's taking the money out using that card. So finally, authorities have a photo, albeit grainy, but a photo at least. The photo depicted a black male with an earring. That was it. The photo was like super grainy. And that was really all they could see was his complexion, and this one earring. The same night, he returns to the same location, the same apartment complex. Now, in March 1994, he decides that he's going to come for Brandy June Henderson because he knew her boyfriend would not be home. He takes it up a notch in deviance and sloppiness once again in this instance. He attempts to kill a child and leaves the apartment in complete disarray. Now, this was new for the killer because previously he was leaving scenes almost spotless wiping down surfaces and all, and he's never targeted children before. And sadly, he was not done with that apartment complex for the night. In the same night as Henderson, he also goes to Betty Jean Balcom's apartment and the Lake apartment complex. And again, a sloppy move on his part because he steals her belongings, pawns them, and steals her car. And despite the Charlotte police attempting to heighten security around the eastern part of the city, the killer could not be stopped because just two days after his lake apartment spree, he robs and strangles Deborah Ann Slaughter and stabs her over 35 times. 
I'm going to spare the details of each strangulation again, but what I will say is that he did not always use the same tools. Sometimes he used a nearby fabric, or sometimes he used his hands. It was also totally out of left field that he stabbed Slaughter and burnt down the home of Jumper. I could see why authorities thought that they were dealing with multiple people. Authorities were also struggling to identify how all these women could be connected. I believe that a big part of them really having difficulty connecting the victims was because Charlotte was having a murder occur almost daily outside of this timeline. And now, remember when I mentioned the killer stole the car of Balcom? Well, while the police were practically overtaking the lake apartments, investigating every corner of the scenes, the killer was busy parking her car just about right across the street. I feel like this is another common thing we see in a lot of cases where the killer wants to be close by and like involved, but not too involved. They want to like watch their own crimes, like watch the police investigate what they've done. Yeah. Hidden in plain sight almost. Yeah. Exactly. And this is definitely not his only hiding in plain sight. And he was absolutely messing with the authorities. So boyfriends like Hawks would be brought in for questioning, especially because Every scene looked as if the killer had been let in willingly, but there was no strong evidence to pin them to the crimes. However, one of the boyfriends was able to provide a short list of people who he believes his girlfriend, Brandy Henderson, would have let into the apartment. Detectives ran the names, but none of the individuals jumped out at them until one of the detectives recognized the earring. The earring the killer wore in the ATM surveillance photo was unique in that it was a hanging gold cross, not just a stud. Out of the three people on Henderson's boyfriend's list, only Henry Wallace wore a hanging cross earring. They were able to bring Wallace's ex-girlfriend in for questioning to get a better idea of who he was, his habits, and where he might be. But in a frustrating turn, she reports that she has no idea where he is and they had recently broken up because Wallace could not get his act together. He was struggling with drugs, but on a good day, he was charming and she could see why anyone would let him into their house, especially if they knew him. And are you ready to hear who Wallace's ex-girlfriend was? Sadie McKnight, Carolyn Love's roommate. Before I continue with the investigation and interrogation, I want to bring something else up. Hawk's mother became very involved with the case and the investigation. She started a support group for parents of murdered children and would go to the press every day advocating for the investigation and demanding answers of what had happened to these women. She questioned if things would be different if these were white faces. So far, the only thing that these women had had in common was that they were all black women and it felt to Hawk's mother, D that race was hindering the investigation. But... Finally, on March 12th, police received a tip where it was believed Wallace could be hiding. He does get spooked and attempts to run, but thankfully, the prime suspect, Henry Lewis Wallace, is apprehended. Now, another chilling detail is that once he sat down in the interrogation room, Wallace remained calm. When most people get to jail or the interview room, whether or not they did it, the first thing that they plead is that it wasn't me, but Wallace just sat there. So just to clarify, he hasn't been asked any questions. He's just sitting there or are they asking him and he's not responding? 
No. So at this point, I believe they had just apprehended him and they had placed him in the room. They were just kind of observing him through the glass. They hadn't gone in yet to ask him any questions. Gotcha. So when they're observing, did they have someone in there analyzing body language? Because I feel like that's something that we see fairly commonly is they'll secretly be recording or have a professional in there um, evaluating body language to determine guilt. Yeah, I don't think in this era of time they would have had the professional there because the department seemed to be so overwhelmed and overworked being they only had nine detectives they were dealing with this and rising homicide rate in the city. So I don't think they would have had a professional yet, but there were other ways that Wallace kind of indicated himself for the crime. So for example, there were certain details that were never released to the press. Which I think is super common too, and it happens a lot. And I think that's something that's really important, especially as you're going and you're looking through new cases is I think we all always get frustrated. Like, how do they not know more? They, they've got to know more. But I think a lot of times what ends up happening is these law enforcement agencies, they know more. They already know more than what we know, but they do it on purpose to help really narrow down who it actually is, especially because a lot of cases, weirdly enough, get false confessions, which I'll never yeah. really understand what people get out of that, but it happens a lot. Yeah, definitely. So this was one of those cases where they kind of use the facts that weren't released to the press yet to their advantage. So not only does Wallace start by admitting that he knows Brandy Henderson, but he also reports that he heard the killer tried to kill her baby, which was not public information. He then admits that he knows Deborah Slaughter and recently spent time with her. But once again, the public didn't even know about this murder yet because they had apprehended him so close to the time that he murdered her. Where Wallace was confident is that he had no parts of handling Balcom's car. He reports that he knows his prints are not in the car. But do you know where his prints actually were? On the outside of the car by the trunk. So he was like, you got nothing on me. I never touched that car. There's no prints in the car. And the authorities were like, oh, there's no prints in the car. But on the outside, they had a giant palm print like right on the back. So from what I read and watch on the case, it seems to me that the print on the back of the car is what completely changed Wallace's tone. And he realized what he had did. And that's when he admits to pretty much everything. Now, I kind of illustrated the timeline straight through in an effort to show how sick he really was. But the authorities actually had no idea that Valencia Jumper was killed by Wallace until he confessed by writing every victim's name on a sheet of paper. So that was the victim that unfortunately he set her house on fire. So it was actually ruled an accident until he came forward and admitted that he had did it. I mean, this guy was really going below the radar for quite some time with victims being completely overlooked and not to mention fire was nowhere near his usual MO. Now, I know before we were kind of talking about how killers like insert themselves into crime. And I know I mentioned as well, like the web between all these victims was like shocking. So you really will not believe some of the connections that the victims had to Wallace well, actually, the first one you might believe, and that is that Shauna Hawk, Audrey Spain, they both worked with Wallace at the local Taco Bell, and Mac's sister worked with him there as well, and that's why he was dubbed the Taco Bell Strangler. He knew Hawk well enough that he attended her funeral and hugged her mother saying he was sorry for what had happened. I'm actually kind of surprised that they didn't 
find this link earlier. You know, a lot of times they'll, especially when there's a lot of cases, but I suppose if they weren't looking at the cases as being from one single person, I mean, I guess it makes sense why they wouldn't, but man, he was literally right in front of them. Yeah. And I was thinking the same thing. Like how did they not realize that like all these people like had at least this connection? I mean, work is like a pretty solid connection, but yeah, right. I'm going to talk about it more, but like in quick, just say it quickly. Like I believe that the crime rate again, not to keep bringing it up, but it was like diluting almost the pool of murders that they had. So Mm. where we know, you know, we're here tonight talking about nine or 10 people while they were having a homicide every day. Yeah. So it's like, you don't, I guess, think that, okay, this is relevant information. I don't know. Right. I mean, you well, and if you see, yeah. And I guess too, if you see a different homicide every day that, and I mean, I guess maybe if the norm is that none of these homicides are connected and then all of a sudden you have this homicide, like various homicides that are connected. I mean, you probably wouldn't put that together, you know? So, but I wonder yeah. if, like, I get law enforcement not get not putting it together, but I wonder if the other coworkers or like people around, because they all must are be aware of each other. Like right. that's true too. The people themselves must at least be aware of the links. I don't know. I like you said, it wasn't totally the same exact pattern. But if I'm working at that Taco Bell and. Or at least I knew these people that got murdered and they all kind of have the same M.O. I don't know. That's true, too. So some of the other connections were that Valencia Jumper's sister was friends with Wallace's sister. Wallace also worked with Henderson's boyfriend. And Balcom, Slaughter, and Love all worked at Bojangles with Wallace's girlfriend. So once again, inserting himself into the investigation, once more... Wallace actually went with family and friends to file the missing persons report for Caroline Love. Like, this man was sick. I know we just kind of went over it, but just to jump back to it, like, how do these connections not seem obvious? And I definitely believe part of it was diluted by the crime rate in the city. But I also hate to say it that I don't disagree with Shauna Hawk's mother that the investigation could have been different if the victims were a different race. Um, We see today in big cities with quote unquote, well-established investigation teams, and that oftentimes cases for black and brown girls just don't get the same media or police attention that they should. So now getting into the motive, do you guys like have any idea what you think his motive might have been? I feel like I'm not sure. Obviously, I don't know. But I feel like with strings of murders like this, sometimes there's no true motive. Like it almost seems, especially with him toying with the police, it just sounds like he's almost having fun with it. And I think the fact that he did it over and over again and nothing happened, almost like a test to see how long can I keep doing this without getting caught? You know, I don't know that there was a real motive either. Yeah, those are definitely good guesses because looking in from the outside, like he just seems completely sick and twisted. And that's pretty much the only Seems like that would have been his only motivation. But I actually found his motive to also definitely be a drug and then in turn money fueled. When he went to Audrey Spain's house, he was convinced that she had the safe code for Taco Bell and was demanding the money. Uh, He was also convinced that Balcom would have the code to the Bojangle safe and reported that obtaining the safe code was his original and only motivation for going to her home. So he reported that 
he didn't go there with the intention to kill her. He wanted to go for the purpose of trying to get the money from the safe. We also see that he's starting to pawn belongings at the end of his spree. And let's not forget that he also took the debit card and actually completed a withdrawal. So the drugs part definitely was starting to come out because I don't know if you guys noticed from beginning to end, like in the beginning of his spree, he's like wiping everything down. He's super clean. He really wasn't even taking much from the apartments. But then it's like towards the end, you see that he's going outside of his MO. He's leaving the apartments in complete disarray. He's beginning to pawn things, which I don't know if you really know how that works, but like once you pawn something, it's connected to you. So if that person went missing and her wedding ring gets pawned or whatever the case, they're going to look at the person who pawned it ASAP because that's a connection. So that was definitely sloppy. And again, money fuel, drug fueled. And I feel like a lot of that sloppiness too, I really do think it just comes from the fact that they weren't looking at him at all. You know, he was just becoming more and more comfortable with it. Because again, you know, like you said, in so many cases, I mean, that's kind of one of the first places people will look, especially if there are missing items like, hey, do you did you notice anything missing from this person's house who's gone? Oh, yeah, we noticed that, you know, this set of jewelry was missing. Well, they're going to go and look for that set of jewelry, either to a try to locate the body or b try to find if there's somebody in connection with it. it definitely. And it's actually interesting because. They, when they had gotten the original three names from Brandy Henderson's boyfriend, obviously Wallace was on the list. And when they run the records of everyone, like they're like, oh, and you know, nothing really like strikes us about either of these three gentlemen. Cause prior to this, Wallace really only had like petty crimes, burglaries, like nothing as chilling as this. Um, so they almost like just kept moving. He would have gotten even more like cocky and arrogant, honestly. I mean, he was killing twice in a night in the same complex. Um, If it wasn't for that detective noticing the earring, like who knows? There may have also been a sexual deviance as part of his motive as well, because Wallace actually admits to the authorities too that he did sexually assault them and would just reclothe them to avoid police running a rape kit. That kind of enraged me that the police would overlook a rape kit, especially if it meant recovering DNA just because the victim was reclothed. I thought that was like really amateur and like naive of them. To do that, especially being how personal strangulation could be like you're right there. I think, too, I think sometimes what the problem with rape kits are and if if what you were saying, you know, you were talking about how there were a lot of um, there were a lot of homicides during this time. Right. So I almost wonder if there were also a lot of rapes, because I know what can sometimes happen is uh, they can get like backed up, you know, where they're just not able to nearly process all of the rape kits that they're getting in. So I wonder if that's something that he almost figured out along the way as well. And kind of, again, just use that to his advantage. Like, oh, well, I know that there are a ton of rapes right now. They're definitely not going to process these rape kids because they're just way too backed up. They're not going to look at me as a serial killer because there's a different homicide every night. Like, this is perfect. I can get away with this and nobody's going to ever know. Yeah, they did definitely say, because I think they did run a kit on someone. It might have been Nance because she was found like in the brush and I guess being her reputation in the city, like she was out kind of hanging out in the street and stuff. They might've run it for her. I can't remember. They definitely ran one. And that was commentary like that. There was so much backlogging that that definitely affected it as well. But like to not even attempt was like, and it just goes back to like what I was saying about like the media coverage. Like if it wasn't getting the coverage that it really deserved and it wasn't getting the urgency that it really deserved, then it was an issue. 
Just a little bit about Wallace. I'm not going to talk about him too much, but like I said, he was fueled by money as he began using crack while he was enlisted in the Navy. Up until the murders, Wallace's rap sheet, like I said, was mostly petty theft and burglaries. He had one failed marriage, which I can't imagine why, and he actually fathered a child during his murdering spree. Wallace was charged for nine of the murders and was never really formally charged for Nance's murder, and Nance's name was not one of the ones that he wrote down on his list in the interrogation room. They just connected it, I guess, by the MO, and they used it that way. It took authorities two years to locate Caroline Love's remains as her body was not found until Wallace was apprehended. So I don't know if you guys noticed, but pretty much everyone was found in their apartment. But Caroline Love just, she remained missing up until they found him and he told them where her body could be found. He was also questioned in a South Carolina murder prior to his spree and prior to locating Charlotte, where the victim, Tashonda Bethia, was someone he was known to date. He was never formally charged, which made me think if he had been charged, could a lot of pain and suffering have been avoided? Today, Henry Wallace is on death row at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. He continues to appeal his charges, and one attorney cites that he did not deserve or he does not deserve the death penalty because he is mentally ill and did not premeditate any of his murders, which was surprising. So I don't know. Do you guys have any other final thoughts on Henry Wallace, the Taco Bell Strangler? So I guess my only question here as we're kind of wrapping up the case, during the trial and the investigation leading up to now, you know, he's on death row. Did he ever, was his defense ever that he was mentally ill or is this kind of a new final attempt to get him off? I think that it's a new final attempt to get him off of death row because- He was just so calculated that I just can't bring myself to believe that he could have been mentally ill and or developmentally like disabled. There's just no way to me. He was just so forthcoming with his information, just confessing right then and there, like writing them down on paper that I think that it's a last ditch effort to get him off death row. I feel like also it's worth mentioning. This just came to mind because we're talking about mental illness and you know, that plea to get off death row. I feel like it's a misconception that people think that pleading insanity will get you off generally. I mean, it will for death row, but it's sometimes even worse to be in those facilities. And I feel like some people don't realize that, that pleading insanity is not going to get you off scot-free. Yeah. It's also really, really hard to get that plea to begin with. I mean, a lot of people commit crimes and then they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm insane. And they think that that's going to get them off and they're just going to do some time in like a hospital and then they're going to go home. But it doesn't work like that. It's like actually really, really difficult to have that and get that plea and have it work for you. It's difficult. But not only that, like, yeah, those facilities that they're being sent to, they're not a cakewalk. It's not like a normal hospital. Yeah, yeah, definitely not that either. It also strikes me that they're claiming that he didn't premeditate any of his murders because he was he was going to their home and like asking to gain entry and then like committing the crime. It's not like he ran into them on the street or that they had like a heated exchange and like it went too far, like a domestic violence thing. And then and it was also a string of murders. Right. So. Uh, (laughs) right it's not like premeditated it's not it it couldn't possibly be 
misconstrued as heat of the moment. Like, even though he knew these people, it's not like it was in the moment having a heated argument. Like, he knew them all vaguely, but he had to go to their house and commit these crimes. And like you said, a string of murders. It can't heat of the moment happening (laughs) many times. No, exactly. It was just like a really shocking case. Like, I kind of saw his his nickname and I thought it would be like an interesting one. But then when I got into it, I was like really taken back, like the inserting himself into the case. And then the, the, the murders were becoming like, it was like month to month, like two in a day like that. It was just getting like, I was just really shocked. But as usual, we would love to hear what the listeners think about Henry Lewis Wallace and the crimes that he committed in the nineties. So you could always find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Cause we'd love to hear your theories. Thank you everyone for listening and for joining us today. You can find all photos and sources for this case on our website, thrillogypodcast.com. We release new episodes every Monday and each week we release two clues leading up to the release of our next episode. So the first clue for next week is who is she? Be sure to check out our Instagram for a second clue later this week. Thanks again for listening. And as always, you can keep up with all things Thrilogy on social media at at Thrilogy Pod. And of course, um, please make your story requests on ThrilogyPodcast.com. Bye.